Well, tonight I'll invite you to come with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, if you're visiting with us this evening, we have been making our way through Ephesians in the evening. Uh, and tonight we're in Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 11. If you're lifting one of our Red Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1174 tonight. Page 1174. So Ephesians chapter 2, and we're in the second half of this chapter. Remember, the first half was a sketch of all of our Christian testimonies, where we have been born and born into sin, and then how the Lord has taken us by His grace and saved us. And now we come to verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you were you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and who has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Amen. And we thank God for His Word to us this evening. Well, do let's turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 2 from uh, verse 11 of that chapter as we think about this uh, great passage together. I don't know if you uh, noticed this week a, a story in the news that reported a, a rescue of a Malaysian climber on Mount Everest. He was uh, almost dead. He was discovered by a Sherpa guide who was guiding another party, and he was in the, the, the so-called death zone on Mount Everest, around 28,000 feet, not all that far from the summit. And uh, this Sherpa found him, and uh, they carried him. He particularly carried him, uh, mostly on his back, uh, down the mountain over the next six hours until he could get to a place where uh, a helicopter could come in and take him for treatment. And you imagine if, if that were you and 
you were peering out the window of the helicopter as you were being taken off to the hospital and you, you, you saw the great towering slopes of Everest, you'd think, wow, I was in, I was in such peril there. Um, I have been rescued so amazingly. I owe everything to my rescuer. The change in my circumstances has been absolutely amazing. My life can never really be the same again. And in a sense, that's what I want us to see and, and feel this evening as we look at this passage, as we look back at where we have come from, uh, not by our own efforts, but by Christ's rescue, we want to see that we were in peril, uh, and we were in peril that was so serious that the effects of this rescue are absolutely amazing, and our lives should not in any way be the same. And one of the effects of this rescue that is particularly highlighted here is how this affects our relationships with others, with other believers. The whole chapter is about the remarkable work of Christ on our behalf. We've looked at the first uh, 10 verses a couple of weeks ago, and, and the emphasis there is that this rescue is entirely uh, Christ's work. We have not uh, gotten ourselves out of this peril. Christ has. Uh, uh, we've not got ourselves out of the death zone, as it were, on the deadly mountain. He has done all of this. And amazingly, He rescued us, not when we were nearly dead, but spiritually when we were really dead in our trespasses and sins. He rescued us and brought us to new life. But in the second part of the chapter, in a sense, that story is retold a little bit. And then what Christ has, has done is emphasized again, and this time the particular implications <clears throat> with others, for our, our, our relationships with others, are teased out. One of the, the key pictures of what Christ has done for us here in these verses is that picture of being drawn near, being brought near. We've sung about it. We've prayed about it. It's a beautiful picture. You might remember in, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus laments over Jerusalem, the city, and He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. It's a beautiful picture, a picture with lots of levels. Uh, some threat appears. The chicks are, are gathered safely under the mother's wings. To, to get to the chicks, you have to sort of deal with the mother. She's protecting them with her life. But it's, what's true in that picture, of course, is that the chicks are, are brought near. Her, her saving work, if you like, the, the hen's saving work is not just protecting them at a distance, but her, her work on their behalf is to bring them near. And Paul says, you who were once far off without hope, you've been brought near, you've been gathered in, you see. And then as well as that, in that picture of us being drawn near, we find that we are drawn near to one another. You think of those little chicks again. They, they cannot be drawn near to the mother without being drawn near to each other. And if you've ever seen uh, th this happening and a, and a mother hen or, or a goose or a, whatever it might be, uh, gathering the, the, the chicks under her wings, you wonder, how do they all fit in there? And I think the answer is they fit in there very compactly because they're all squished together. And so the chicks cannot come together under the mother's wings without being drawn close together. And that's very much the implication that Paul is, is teasing out here. What does the work of Christ mean for our relationships with one another? What does it mean for, for we who have been drawn together? Well, three steps just to simply 
a work our way through this passage. First of all, remember where we were. Remember where we were. To, to get us uh, to see what is being said here, one of the things that we need to uh, realize is that Paul is especially focusing on the Gentiles, those who were not Jews. Remember at that time, there is just one great division that especially the Bible is conscious of in the world at that point, and it is that division between Jew and Gentile. We are largely, I'm sure, Gentiles by background. What we think of ourselves is probably not in, in those sorts of terms. It's not a category that's uppermost in our minds. But in Paul's day, in the Bible's day, uh, that was hugely important, and we need to understand why. For centuries up to this point, the saving work of God was, was largely bound up with the Jewish people. They were not automatically saved by being Jews. They were not the only ones saved God had indeed used them to, or intended them to bless others, but nevertheless, they had huge advantages. They had the Scriptures. Paul says that in Romans. They, they, they had the prophets. They, they had the promises. They, they, were, they were God's people, and, and all of these sorts of things, huge advantages. And the Gentiles had really none of those advantages, and, and Paul draws attention to that. You see, in verse 12, he says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, you Gentiles were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. There was a whole list of, of disadvantages that he draws attention to here. Separated from Christ, you know, the, the Jews, of course, had had spent their whole sort of history looking forward to the Messiah, even, we might say, trusting in the promise of the Messiah, but not the Gentiles. They didn't really know about the Messiah. Excluded from citizenship in Israel. Israel, the focus of God's saving work, the Gentiles, outside of that. Foreigners to the covenants of promise, down through the history of the people of God, God had had instituted many covenants with them, agreements to, to be their God and them to be His people, for example. There were covenants with Noah and, and Moses and Abraham and David, and, and they were all variations of uh, repetitions of one great covenant of grace, God's gracious action on their behalf, and all leading to Jesus. And again, the, the, the Gentiles, outside of that. And so, they were without hope and without God in the world, living without the prospect of the presence of God now, or being with God in the future. So, so if, if we are, are Gentiles and we were to take ourselves back 2,000, 2,500 years ago, our spiritual prospects were incredibly bleak, Christless, peopleless, promiseless, godless, hopeless. And that was these people's lot before God drew them near. And really, it parallels our position in Christ too, without, uh, without Christ, uh, without hope and without God in the world. It's a good thing to remember, isn't it, what we were. What did you think whenever you were getting ready to come to church tonight? What was in your head? I'm sure all sorts of things. Maybe for some of us, I, I guess I'd better go It'll be good to see so-and-so. be interesting to see what 
is said about Ephesians. Looking forward to singing some good songs. Nice to get a nice cup of tea on a cold day like today. All, all, all sorts of things that go through our heads, don't we, whenever we're jumping into the car to come to church. But at least sometimes, how about this? Would it be the case that sometimes this sort of thing should go through our heads? I'm going to church tonight. It's, it's, just, it's just amazing that I'm a Christian. I mean, me. I, I really had, had no hope. I was Christless and godless, hopeless. And, and even if I had Christian parents and, and, a, and a covenant background, I, I, I deserve nothing but the wrath of God. And yet here I am. I, here I am, and I'm jumping in the car. I really must join with my brothers and sisters to, to praise my God because I'm His and He is mine. Does that ever go through your head? What, what could you do to make sure that that goes through your head sometimes? Because you notice that Paul says twice here, remember. Why does he do that? Well, it's because we're, we're prone to forget. He, he knows this, doesn't he? He knows that after we've been believers some time, we may start to do what we do with so many things and just take some things for granted. And we may begin to forget the situation that we were in before God stepped in to save us. We might begin to think, yes, it's a, it's a big deal for God to save those sorts of people, but, but He didn't have to work so hard to save me, did He? But no. The Bible here says, that you were Christless and peopleless and promiseless and godless and hopeless. And so he says, remember that. Remember who you were. You, you were, you were in the death zone on, on the mountain of peril. Remember where we were. The second thing is we've got to see what God has done. Now, there's so much in these verses about, about what God has done. Uh, there is a, a but now. You see in verse 13, uh, you see that? But now, it, it, it mirrors, I said that, that the second half of this chapter it sort of mirrors the first half of the chapter. There's a but in, in a, the first half of the chapter as well. It's in verse 4. But God. Here is our situation. But God. And now, again, here's our situation. But now, verse 13. So often the way that Paul tells us the gospel. Here's the, the peril that you were in. It was bleak and desperate, but God has stepped in. That, that's how I imagine our Malaysian climber friend will, will tell his story in the future. There I was, I was in the death zone on the mountain. I had no energy. I had used all my Kendall milk cake and, and uh, I, I was, my situation was absolutely hopeless. And then the Sherpa found me and everything was different. And Paul says, but now, and it's the work of Christ here that is emphasized. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It, it's that beautiful picture of being brought near. <clears throat> no longer at a distance, no longer aliens. That's a word that comes in this passage a few times. But, but brought in under the sheltering, protective wings of Christ, we might say. Unless we think that was an easy thing for him to do, it's not because what's drawn attention to here is that we are brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ paid for our gathering in. 
with his life. The, 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 the mother hen did indeed put itself between her chicks and the danger and paid with her life. You know that, that uh, at the time of the Australian wildfires a few years ago, there were these stories of, of people coming across the, the burnt bodies of nesting birds, mother birds, and finding chicks alive underneath them. There they had, they had, they had given themselves to the fire to save their, their offspring. They'd put themselves between their chicks and the fire. And Christ has, has given His life in order that we might be drawn near. It's no sentimental thing that He has done for us. It was hard and harsh and bloody by the blood of Christ. And His death brings us peace. We need to think about this. Verse 14, for He Himself is our peace. Peace is this great Christian word. We use it often, don't we? And the peace that we need is not peace of mind. It's not just a, a sort of a feel-good peace. It's not that we get to, to feel better about God or about the future. I have peace whenever I think about, about the fact that, that my life is, is, uh, is, is running out and so on. It's not just that. The, the peace that we need is the peace that comes as we cease our hostilities towards God and He ceases His towards us. That's the, the first reference of of peace, God our enemy becoming our ally. But then this idea of peace is, is taken in a slightly different direction, because now this idea of the chicks being drawn together is emphasized. Those who are enemies, who are squished in under the, the protective wings of Christ, become friends too. Verse 14, for He Himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, the, the great barrier between Jew and Gentile has been destroyed because now they both have peace with God through Christ, and therefore, they have peace with one another. This uh, dividing wall of hostility is an interesting little phrase. If you were as a Gentile, if we were as Gentiles to approach the temple back in Jesus' day, you could come in a certain distance. You could come into the, the outer court, a vast complex. It was the, the court of the Gentiles. And then there was a point at which there were some steps that went up to a raised area, a huge area again. But around that, that raised area, there was a wall. You couldn't really see into it, perhaps. And, and, and on that wall, there, there were a number of plaques, inscriptions that said that if you were a Gentile and you passed that, Paul, that, that point, that wall, then you would be responsible for your own death, which would ensue. So, so there literally was a dividing wall of hostility. There was a wall that, <clears throat> that represented the differences between Jew and Gentile. The Gentiles could only go so far. They couldn't get to where, as it were, God was. But now that wall has been torn down. And here's the thing. It's not been torn, torn down by saying, now you can come in and become Jews. That's maybe what the Jews wanted. No, the Gentiles don't become Jews and the Jews don't become Gentiles. No, Christ, He does an amazing thing. He, he makes, as it says here, a new man, a new species. John Stott, uh, Stott talks about a new humanity. 
a new humanity. His purpose, you see in verse 15, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. You see, this is what Jesus has done. No longer Jew or Gentile, but a new humanity. And now the same message goes to Jew or to Gentile, to those far away, the Gentiles, and to those near, the Jews. Both need the message of peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we'd been in the, the, the park yesterday afternoon and, and, and we, we, we saw a group of Gentiles coming towards us and a group of Jews coming towards us, it's effectively the same message, isn't it? Peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17 says this, He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through Him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. There's another uh, story in the papers this week of how at one of those um, one of those petting farms, petting zoos, uh, a, a new breed of sheep was created accidentally. Uh, some Shetland ewes accidentally got into a pen of a valet ram, and they didn't notice for a little while, and and suddenly these ewes were all with with child or with whatever they're with, and, and uh, with little sheeps. And, and, uh, and, and, and it, 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 it was a new breed. It was, they call it a chalet. It was a Shetland and a valley. And uh, it, it's not this or it's not that. It's, it's a new breed, you see. Something entirely new. Not, not half of one and half of the other. Something new. And Christ has formed a, a new humanity, not a little bit of Jew and a little bit of Gentile, no, but a, a new humanity. That's how radical his work is. He, he creates a, a new humanity. It's the most important group in the world to belong to. My wife uh, tends to say that there are only two types of people in the world. There are the Scots and there are those who wish they were Scots. And I'm not going to enter into that debate, but... but uh, but actually, there are only two types of people in the world. There are those who are part of this new humanity and those who are not. Do you know that one of the, the watchwords of our day is identity? We talk about people finding their identity and being true to their identity. We talk about identity politics. Who you are is incredibly important in our world. But do you see that if you're a Christian here tonight, Christ has given you a new identity. It trumps everything else. It is to be part of His new people. And it follows that every other identity must fall before this, must bow before this new identity. Every other way of seeing yourself must come second. For some, it must even go entirely. It's the most important thing about you that you are part of this new humanity that God has created through Christ Jesus. So, do you see what Christ has done? To you who are hopeless and godless and friendless, God has brought peace with Him and with each other. He's made you part of His new people. There are all sorts of applications from this, aren't there? Wouldn't it be so wrong to divide God's people along these 
secondary issues. Don't you sometimes read, for example, of, of the, the, the church in South Africa in the days of apartheid or, or, or the church in the deep south of the states where, where people were divided along racial lines? So, so wrong to, to divide against these secondary identities. But maybe we've got some divisions too, don't we? We mustn't do that. Race or politics or whatever. We can't hold our brothers and sisters at a, different, at a distance. It's really to deny the reconciling work of Christ. And perhaps even the difference between us and a fellow brother or sister is not one of these identities, but something that, that simply has happened between us and we hold them at a distance. And maybe we've got to ask the question, well, surely if, if Christ can unite Jew and Gentile, this, this fissure that ran through the whole human race, is His work not sufficient to reconcile two genuine believers who differ over something much less serious? See what God has done. And then the last thing, just in a word or two, is see what Christ produces. Look at verse 19. Consequently, so then, consequently, you are no longer foreigners or, and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. So the alienation is gone, you see. Now we're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The household of God is that reference to an extended family that would dwell together. They're a new humanity, but they're also a new family. They're God's family. But we're not just a, a family. We are, as, as Peter says, we're living stones being built into a temple. This, these verses go on to talk about that. And the temple, you know, was where God met with His people. Some of our young adults were down at the castle this weekend. They were learning from John D. Rhodes about the tabernacle in Leviticus, which, of course, is the forerunner of the temple. And, and so, we ask the question, well, where does God meet His people today? He meets them in this new temple, in the church, amongst His people as we gather to worship. Once if we'd been in Jerusalem, we who were Gentiles could not have drawn near to meet with God. Now He comes and draws near to us and meets with us in His church. And just as His presence once descended upon the temple and filled it, so He is filling and dwelling in His church by His Spirit. We need to think about that as we get into the car to come to church too. It matters, therefore, how we worship. It matters how we treat this time together. It matters how we prepare for it, because God, by His Spirit, is dwelling here. We're being built into a home for Him. And what will help us be built well or build well? Well, part of it, surely, is to see what Paul goes on to say here, remembering the foundation on which we are built because it's a foundation that has already been laid. You see verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the key chief cornerstone. We've been singing about that tonight too. Lovely passage from uh, Richard Coken who writes on this. He, he says this, there'll be no new foundation, there's to be no new foundation, and every church planted today must be founded on this gospel rock of Scripture, or it's not the heavenly church. We will keep discovering 
more in the Bible, but we're not hearing new guidance from God in our hearts or in our imagination on which to build Christ's church. We're not developing trajectories from Scripture to today in order to create more culturally acceptable foundations for the church. The foundational teaching of Christ and His apostles and prophets is completed and available in Scripture, and Christ has been building His church on it for 2,000 years. God is not constantly relocating His church upon alternative foundations, but building up His church upon the one original and completed foundation in the Bible. It's God's building. He has completed its foundations. One of the things that some of you who are younger are going to face in your generation is all the competing claims of churches that are saying, well, well, actually, we, we think that the Spirit is leading us in this, in this new direction, but it turns out that it's a direction that's away from the foundation that's already been laid. And if we're to see what Paul says here, then we've got to conclude it's not the Spirit that's leading in that direction. One thing that we could pray for the coming general assembly of the Presbyterian Church is that all that we do will be faithful to this unchanging foundation. It's what Christ produces. I don't know if you ever get depressed by the state of the church. Sometimes it seems to be in such trouble. Sometimes it's so pushed to the margins of society. Sometimes it just seems to be such a poor reflection of what it should be, what we should be. But it is what God is is doing. He, he's building a home for Himself by His Spirit. It's, it's amazing. We really need to think of that more often. I remember uh, this illustration, I've used it before, of uh, Sinclair Ferguson describing an, an old church in Glasgow that was being restored, and it was a huge building, and, and the building was black with the soot and the grime of uh, centuries, and, and then the scaffolding went up, and he used to walk past it on his way to his work every day, and, and this scaffolding went up and stayed up for a very long time, and he really forgot it was there. And then one day, the job was complete, and the, the scaffolding was removed, and, and Sinclair describes how he turned around the corner, and the sun was on this newly renovated building, and it was just pristine, and it shone, and he just stopped in his tracks and said, wow, look at that. And you see, this is what God is doing. He's working away and building a holy temple. It, it, it is, we are, as it were, behind the scaffolding just now. The world may ignore us, but one day the job will be complete, and the whole universe will, will say, wow, look at this. Look at what God has done. And so, if this is what He is doing, if this is the headline of what's happening in our world today, then give yourself to it. Make it Make it better by your being here, by your commitment to it, by your throwing yourself into it, even in the time that we spend together this evening after our service is over. And if you know that as you sit here, you're, you're still looking into this people and looking into this household and looking into this building, Know that there is a welcome from the one who longs to draw you near and to bring you under his shelter, never ever to cast you out again. Come to him. He is worth it. Let's pray together.
Lord, it is a wonderful picture to think of you drawing us near. We who were far away, without hope, without God, to be brought in, to be made citizens, to be made family members, to be built into a holy dwelling for our God. Lord, we pray that you will help us to see through and past the things of our world that would say to us, this is all that there is, live for here and now, and to see what it is you are doing, to make sure that by trusting in our Lord Jesus Christ, by falling before him, we are part of it, but also, Lord, to give ourselves to it, that we might honor him. So hear us in our prayer, for we ask in Jesus' name.